and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performance Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. When I'm not recording this podcast, I work as a mental performance coach, which gives me the opportunity to work with elite performers in both business and in sports. And today's guest, who I'll get to in a minute, is one of those people who I've been so fortunate to partner with. So I fired up this podcast to try to get more insight, more wisdom, more knowledge, more intentional gems about how people are intentionally setting their mind to be their best. So we think about their mindset both in practice and in performance, and we try to sift for intentional gems. Now, before we get started, I want to tell you about how you can help support the podcast. First, we appreciate you just listening, so thank you for that. Second, if you could share this episode with a friend, a family member via email, you know, you can even send it in a text link these days, or if you can share it on social media, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, it really does help us boost our platform and obviously boost our audience. So it really does make a big difference. The other way is going over to iTunes and writing a review. A lot of you have done that. Thank you for doing that. And if you haven't already, please go over and do so. The last way is through a company called Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com backslash intentional performers, you can actually subscribe to this podcast and give us a couple dollars to just help us continue to make this podcast as great and as fulfilling and as purposeful and as intentional as possible. Now to today's guest. So Coach Jen Rosati is somebody who I've had the pleasure to work with at George Washington University, where she is the head women's basketball coach. They just had an amazing year where they actually won the Atlantic 10 championship and competed in the NCAA tournament. But Coach Rosati has been at this for a long time. So she is an NCAA champion. She played at University of Connecticut. Uh, she was really at the beginning stages of the dynasty that and the powerhouse that UConn has become. So in this conversation, we'll share what that was like for her to be at the early stages, some of the relationships she built then and why that team and that organization has been so successful throughout the years. She'll also talk about Gino Oriema, who is a legendary basketball coach in really any level, men, female, it doesn't really matter. Coach Oriema uh, has really established something special at UConn. So she'll talk about that. Then she'll also talk about her professional career. She is a two-time WNBA champion. She played at the highest level and when the WNBA was really first getting started. So Coach Rosati was at the forefront of that. And she has all kinds of accolades to her name. She was the player of the year in college basketball. She has won the Wade Trophy. She has won Honda Sports Award for basketball in 1996. So her 
work as the point guard for the University of Connecticut college basketball team, got her all kinds of accolades as a player. As a coach, she's the four times American East tournament champion when she was coaching at Hartford. As I mentioned, they won the Atlantic 10 with George Washington last year. So she is no stranger to championship basketball. She also has been heavily involved with USA basketball, both as a player and as a coach. And when we recorded this, she had just gone back to working with the national team as an assistant coach. So Coach Rosati's accolades, you can Google them. You can find out more about her. She's pretty humble and pretty modest when it comes to talking about that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, she is just a great coach. She understands the power of cultivating relationships. She understands the power of accountability. And she really takes her job seriously, but she doesn't take herself too seriously. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Coach Rosati. And when you do, if you could share it, we would really be grateful. But without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Coach Jen Rosati. Jen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. This So to paint the picture, because no one can see, uh, we are in a townhouse in the middle of George Washington University's campus in Washington, D.C. And I think when I first walked in here, it's such a different environment than what I'm used to when I walk into offices. Um, what was it like for you starting off here at GW being in an urban environment, I know it's a little different than other environments you've been at in your basketball career, but talk about what it's like to be the head coach of GW women's basketball. Yeah, it's definitely different. I mean, playing at UConn, we were out in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, coaching at Hartford, uh, we were still on a very, you know, suburban campus, um, but we were close to a city. So we were near a lot of things. And now I'm right in the middle of everything, which is pretty cool. And, um, you know, the, the townhouse is, is unique. And I think for us, um, you know, it, it allows us to create that family atmosphere. It's like, we're living in this house together when we come to work. Um, but we're still really connected to the rest of the GW community. So I think sometimes people wonder how, we still stay in touch with the other coaches and the administrators, but we're fortunate en enough to be in a place where meeting as a head coach group or meeting as a staff and um, supporting each other through our different sports um, is very regular for us. So even though we have our own space here and we're in the middle of DC, it allows us to kind of get a lot of work done and like the word you always say, be very intentional with our time when we're at work. Um, and I think it's a cool space for our players to feel comfortable to come over and hang out with us. And that's important to us that we're always creating an atmosphere where our players um, want to be, you know, kind of walking in and being a part of our day. Um, so that's always nice. And then being right across the street helps from the gym, a couple of blocks from the monuments. I got a good couple good jogging routes that I take. So really can't complain about my work environment. It's interesting you say that. So my wife jokes when we came into DC a couple of years ago and we're both from the area. She's like, look, Brian, the Washington Monument. And yeah. I'm like, yes, Robin, I'm, I've seen it many, many times. But this morning on the drive in, I looked up and I was like, oh yeah, perfect view of the Washington Monument. And it is amazing how sometimes we just forget that we are in the middle of this historic place. Uh, I wanted to uh, unpack one thing that you talked about, which is this sort of open door policy. Mm -hmm. And literally as I was sitting downstairs waiting for us to chat, one of your players came in, walking in, smiling, just, she said, Hey, I just came in to say hi. Mm -hmm. uh, just said hi to a couple of coaches uh, in between classes and then walked out. 
Where does that come from for you to try to create that environment, to try to create that atmosphere? Uh, well, that, that's the atmosphere I lived in when I was a college player. Um, I was able to just, you know, walk into the the outer office, but then also if the door was open, walk into Gino's office and have a conversation. And, um, you know, I think that it was important for me to be able to create um, an environment as a coach that mirrored that family atmosphere that I was a part of as a player. And, you know, there's a lot of places where kids are, kind of afraid to go to the coach's door, you know, like I'm down at the end of the hallway. So I don't want them to ever feel like when they come into the townhouse, they don't want to come upstairs or they don't want to walk down and say hello. Um, and I think a big part of that is making them feel like it is important to me to know who they are off the court. And it is important for me to know who they are as people. So I want them to be in here. This isn't a place where you come to and it's the principal's office and you're only getting in trouble when you're sitting in my couch. I want them to feel like there's a lot more opportunity for them to come in here and be who they are. Um, and that that translates to me, at least, to, to success on the court. When I, I know my players are playing for me, they're invested in what I'm saying and what I'm doing, and they know that I'm invested in them and their success, it creates a bond that goes, you know, a lot for, farther than just, you know, talent and, and basketball skill. You mentioned UConn and women's basketball and UConn mm -hmm. are synonymous with championships. Um, but take me back before then. So what led to your decision to go there? What was high school like for you? Upbringing, just paint the picture of what life was like before you yeah. got on the scene there. Um, I actually, when I was in fifth grade, my dad came home and told my family that we were going to move to Japan. Um, so my sixth grade through ninth grade years, I spent overseas. Um, obviously, I didn't want to leave when when I was told we were going. I cried for two days. Um, but it ended up being the, probably one of the best things that ever happened in my life. Um, I had a great experience in school and I had a great experience in sports. Um, and we grew up a lot. We matured a lot at our age. My brother and I were, were 11 and 12 at the time. So we took a lot from traveling around the world and seeing different things and seeing different cultures and being around people who had grown up and spent time in their lives in places other than the United States. So when I moved back to Connecticut, because uh, my dad worked in, in New York, we, you know, settled back into the same town in 10th grade. And that was really hard for me to see the same people. But I was so much different. What do you think you learned from being in a foreign country, yeah. foreign language, different culture? Yeah. What was the big takeaway? Well, I, honestly, I, the biggest thing was I had so much more independence um, you know, I lived in Tokyo and my brother and I took the train an hour to school every day. We stayed and did our sports and then we took the train home. Um, so I didn't see my parents from like 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. every day. I was on my own. Um, so to move back to a town where now I had to drive everywhere and I had to rely on someone else's car or um, I was around people who never left the state. Um, I, you know, I don't want to say I was worldly, but there is definitely you know, a different sense when you're, you know, 14 years old now heading into high school when you've traveled, you know, to different places. You've seen the Great Wall of China and you've seen poverty in China. And, you, you know, we spent time in um, Korea and different parts of Asia. And then just even being a foreigner in Japan where 
we were so different. I mean, people used to come up and like touch my hair, you know, because they, it was curly at the time and brown and they just wanted to feel it, you know, cause Japanese people have very straight, dark hair. So, you know, we were very just independent and very accustomed to adapting to a very new living space. So I felt, um, we were outside of our comfort zone. We weren't sheltered and it just kind of was hard to go back to a town that, we, we knew all the same people, but we were very different as kids. How long did it take you to adjust once you got to Japan? Because you said, I was crying yeah. for two days. When did you, I'm going to use the word, like the words let go, but yeah. when did you just sort of embrace it? Um, I don't know if I remember exactly, but I do remember doing a, a visit to the school with my parents. So we went out to visit and meet with like the you know principal and the teachers and I don't know. I just felt like there was something special about it. I had a really great middle school experience with mo most uh, girls would not say was the case for them. Um, and then I'm sure that it correlated to when I started playing sports. So we moved out there in the summer and I started playing soccer in, you know, probably mid August for the school team. Uh, and that was my element. As soon as I was in sports, I felt comfortable. Um, so I just enjoyed, I, I think it was a pretty quick transition for me. I, I made friends quickly. I enjoyed my teachers. I enjoyed the challenge. It was very academically challenging. And then I was immediately playing sports. And that was where I always kind of lived my life. When did you start playing sports? Was it elementary school? So oh, yeah. You were already I, a job. Oh, before. By, by I mean, school? Soccer, I started playing before I can remember. So that was like my first love. And that's like the sport everybody can play when they're three. Um, I didn't start playing basketball probably till third grade. Um, and then in fifth grade, before I left for Japan, I was playing in like a fifth through eighth grade league. So I was already playing up against kids that were older than me. So I kind of remember that pretty distinctly. But I did everything. I played baseball with the boys, soccer with the boys. We did track events. We did basketball um, so I was kind of, my brother was 11 months older than me. So I just tagged along and played on every team that he played on. So, um, it was my upbringing. My dad was, um, the kind of guy that made sure he was home at five o'clock every day so he could play with us in the yard and all the neighborhood kids came to our yard to play sports. And, um, they were always supportive of me playing. I never, was told that I was supposed to do girl things or that girls weren't supposed to play with boys. My parents just, my dad coached us a lot and we just played together a lot. So that was who I was and going to Japan and playing soccer with the boys was just like easy for me. That was an easy adjustment. And we went to an American school, so I wasn't, you know, totally out of my element. Everybody spoke English and a lot of people had originated from the States, but, um, you know, it, I grew up a lot there and learned a lot. And, and so when I moved back to Connecticut, it was like, UConn wasn't this, what it is now. It wasn't like I moved back and I had grown up with these dreams of playing at University of Connecticut my whole life. I was, someone's like, oh, hey, you want to play AAU? And I didn't even know what it was and started playing on my high school team. So I really didn't even get recruited until I was a sophomore in high school, uh, which is very late these days. And so UConn just was one of the schools recruiting me. It wasn't the only school. It wasn't the preferred destination at the time. It was just within the, the distance that I wanted to travel, and it was a good program, and it was one of three or four schools I was looking at. You mentioned dad coming home and coaching and being home at five. Mm -hmm. What are some values that your parents passed down to you? 
Well, I would say number one, their work ethic. Um, both of my parents was phenomenal. Um, they, they never stopped moving and they still don't. They're 70 and 72 and they literally, they come down to visit and my dad's out and mowing the lawn and, and weed whacking and uh, rearranging the shed. And my mom's in the house, like doing laundry and like cleaning underneath something that I haven't cleaned since I moved here. And so, and then they're out with my kids playing in the driveway, both of them. So they're just very active people that have always had a good work ethic and always wanted to be doing something. So I definitely learned that from them. They both were competitive and I didn't learn that about my mom until I was older and we went and played mini golf, but, um, they both were competitive and they wanted to win. Um, and they both were, um, fair, you know, like they had compassion, they were strict, but they were fair. Um, I was not the easiest child. I was a very poor sport. I complained about everything if I wasn't in favor of me winning. Um, I got in trouble a lot for that, but they were right. <laughs> crying after losses, mm -hmm. just over competitiveness. Is that how you Oh yeah. It? I mean like crying if my dad said that my ball was foul and I thought it was fair in the backyard and that he was pitching it too fast to me compared to my brother, like poor sport about everything. And sports, you mentioned your brother having an impact there. Mm -hmm. Mom and dad, were they into sports as well? Or was that more your brother sort of bringing you along? No, no, no. My, my dad, my, both my parents were active. My mom, even when I was younger, played tennis and, and, you know, did active things. And she said she played basketball when she was younger, but well, I don't know about that. My dad actually was a college football player. So he played basketball and football in high school and then went on to play he was a quarterback in college. So he had a big sports background as did his twin brother. So we just grew up. It was like part of our culture. And I have a younger brother and sister. So it was all four of us. They were just a couple years younger than me. So my brother was, is, <laughs> is six, four and somehow took all of my height away from me. Um, but being bigger and stronger, um, helped me. He did not have the same, um, tenacity that I had, which is probably, I had to build it to keep up with him. So I credit him a lot for not just helping me grow as an athlete, but also being my biggest fan. Cool. So you head off to UConn. Mm -hmm. Uh, what's it like once you get there, walk us through what that yeah. experience was like for you? Well, I ended up choosing UConn because I wanted to be a part of something special and I could feel that when I was there and it's hard to explain. People always ask me why I chose it. Um, and they think it was because of, of UConn now. And I said, no, they hadn't won anything yet. But I could tell they were on the cusp of it. You know, Any I, idea what you could tell or what you could see? Or? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure a lot of it had to do with Gino. Um, he's great at articulation. He's great at selling his vision. Um, he had just signed Rebecca Lobo, who was a top recruit the year before me. Um, they, I, I don't know that there was something I could pinpoint. Uh, I think I went to a practice, um, just the facilities that they had and what the resources they were putting into women's basketball and like the climb, the steady climb that they had made in his five or six years that he was there before I got there. I'd all kind of combined into being what I felt like I needed. So they knew right away that I wanted to start and play right away. I, uh, they had a point guard that had graduated. So that was a big part of my decision. Uh, just want to go to that place. Why did senior year high school, you say, mm -hmm. I want to go and I want to mm -hmm. start. Like, is that the competitiveness that you're talking about earlier? Or, or what about that was important to you? Yeah. Well, I mean, I got to think that if you ask nine out of 10 high school kids, they would tell you they want to start. 
It's just a matter of whether or not they do like do their homework and they're good enough. So I did my homework and I was good enough. It was a combination of both. Uh, but we were, it was also timing. Like we weren't there yet. Like if I went to UConn 20 years later, I might not be able to start. But at the time they were losing their point guard. They were still growing. They, they needed someone like myself and like my, my classmate Jamel that had a fire to like light under everybody else. And so I had to learn how to do that pretty carefully as a freshman. I wasn't always good at it. Um, my over competitiveness sometimes was not always a worked. It didn't always work in my favor. Um, but I learned a lot from Gino about leadership and how I needed to do it more effectively if we were going to end up being a lot better as we got older. Um, so yeah, I, I think I, it was just more that I was used to playing. I was used to having the ball in my hands. I was used to making the decisions and I didn't want to go to a school where I wouldn't be able to do that. You mentioned leadership and that learning a lot your mm -hmm. freshman year. What are some lessons you took with you from that experience of coming in, being a freshman, yeah. but them saying, hey, we we want you to do X, Y, and Z? Yeah. Well, I, I learned a lot about my relationships with my teammates and how important they were. Um, you know, I remember Gino saying, like, you're never going to be able to lead anybody if they don't think you care about them. So you, it can't be fake. It can't be like you just get to know them when you're in practice. Like, you need to spend time knowing your your teammates outside of basketball if you have, want to have any chance of them listening to you when you're younger than them. Uh, I'll never forget that conversation. Um, and it's it's part of who I am as a coach. Like I can't lead these 17-year-olds if they don't think I care about them and I, I don't get the take the time to get to know them. You, so You said, I'll never forget that conversation. Can you take us to that? Can you remember like where it was – what you're, what you're wearing, like how vivid is that? In your um, memory? I don't really have a very vivid memory. Actually, I have a pretty poor memory of specifics. I do remember I was in study hall and I do remember I was writing a paper and Gino came up behind me and wanted to read it. And I didn't want him to like, I felt vulnerable or just not confident in what what I had written. And so I just remember that was kind of like, I don't know how that started the conversation about leadership, but I just remember having it. And we'll come back to the Yukon experience, but the word leadership is fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. And so you have teams now that believe that we have a team full of leaders. Yeah. And then there's another approach that says, no, we have captains or mm -hmm. whatever that approach might be. So I use the Boston Celtics as an example Brad Stevens before the season said, we're not going to name captains. We're going to have a team full of leaders. Uh, and then you have other teams that absolutely like that person's our captain. They're a leader. How do you, how do you make sense of leadership as it relates to the team? Uh, well, I think that every team is unique in that regard. And I think that you do a disservice to your team. If you always try and have the same model of leadership. I do. I've, I've done it in many different ways. Um, I've had years where we didn't have captains. Um, I've had years where I didn't name them right away. And then I've had years where I named them the day after the season ended for the next year. Um, I do think there's a difference between being a captain and being a leader. Um, I think that we had plenty of good captains and good role models when I played, but I knew I, I was the leader of that team or one of them. Um, and I think that it's important. I think it's harder to find uh, young people that will come in and have, you know, the confidence to be able to impact the team in that way, whether it's by example or by their verbal, you know, actions. Um, but I think that it's when you have a team that has a great, great leadership structure, 
uh, it can do a lot for you. And that was something that we learned last year with the team that we had. You just mentioned vulnerability. You mentioned verbal versus leading by example or both. Uh, what are qualities that you think uh, typically are aligned with leadership? Um, well, I think a great sense of accountability. Um, and that is that goes for what you're doing in the classroom, you know, how you act, you know, when you're not on the court, what you say in the locker room, and then most importantly, what you do, you know, like it's as cliche as you want it to be to say actions speak louder than words, but there's nothing more true. And so if you have a great sense of accountability, like you are going to hold yourself to a very high standard in your work ethic and in what you're trying to accomplish as a human being. So I, I don't care if you are comfortable saying things. I don't care if you're comfortable talking in practice or if you don't, you can still be a great leader without being verbal mm -hmm. uh, if you have a great sense of, of, of accountability. So take me to UConn. So now you're with this talented team, mm -hmm. um, but you're coming in and expected to do certain things mm -hmm. and maybe going to places that you're not, you haven't been comfortable with in the past and maybe transforming a little bit. Um, you guys won a championship. What makes a championship team? And, and I'd love to know sort of what that experience is like, as you said, putting a team on the map, so yeah. to say, um, or shattering expectations or whatever it might be. Yeah. What was that like for you? Well, it was definitely transformative, I would say. I was a bossy freshman that just thought I could tell everybody what to do because I worked hard and I played all the time to becoming a junior where I was much better at playing off of, of in individual players' buttons and what motivated them and how I could push them to be their best and still be, um, you know, again, holding them accountable to a high level. Uh, I, I knew much better how to motivate. So having younger players that I knew when I needed to pull them along and when I needed to yell at them, and then even older players that I needed to learn how to show respect to, but also get them to follow me in the huddle and on the court. So I did learn a lot in my first two years that I think allowed me to be a better leader for my team by the time I was a junior, we won that, that championship. But I think that we just had the right mix. So you know, Rebecca and Pam were our seniors and they were two of our best players. They were, they acted the, the right way all the time. You know, they led by example. They were people you wanted to play for. Like they were seniors you wanted to win for. And you need to have that. You need to have seniors that the underclassmen want to play for, I think, to be a championship team. And then you had Jamel and I as juniors and we were the competitors. We, we were the ones that would fight anybody for anything. Like we had your back. We set the tone. We yelled at everybody. We were the talkers in the huddle. And, and we just understood that that needed to be our role. We didn't need to be the best players. We didn't need to score the most points, but we needed to bring that fire. And then we had Kara and Carla were younger than us and they just kind of were great followers. They didn't say a lot, but they listened and you need people who are willing to understand their role and maybe do a lot without having to say a lot. And then we had Nikisha was a freshman and she was just like a stud. So we had talent, we had great leadership, we had great competitiveness, we had great followers. We just, the right, we had the right mix of people that understood each other, wanted to play for each other, and really understood that the sum of our parts, you know, was going to be much greater than any individual thing that we were, we were trying to accomplish. 
and the world, like you said, looks back now and sees this, I don't even know what you call them, but, uh, behemoth of yeah. a uh, organization. Yeah. Where, um, Gino is also seemingly, you know, he's a legend in yeah. the basketball world. Forget women's, men's. He's just a legend in basketball. What was it like for him going into that final four yeah. uh, then? Um, and, you know, I'll tell you a quick story. So I had Akeem Warwick on here. Akeem played uh, for Syracuse University when they won the championship. And he talked about Jim Beheim, mm -hmm. who for years was a very good coach, but hadn't won a championship. Yeah. And he said, like the championship game, Beheim came in and they said he was nervous as hell. <laughs> He's like, we yeah. got you, coach. And it was yeah. very much like, we got you. We'll, yeah. we'll take care of it. Um, so I, once again, I think we, we tend to see legends and yeah. see them in a certain light. So I would love to know just, you know, what was it like mm -hmm. going through that? And um, yeah. 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 Well, obviously, I, I, you know, be remiss if I didn't say that part of championship teams is coaching and uh, not all of them. Like I've seen people win championships that didn't have good coaching. But in our case, we had the right coach and he was the right coach because he knew how to push us to expect the best and to never take a possession off, to never not practice hard, to never ha set a lower expectation than what he had set for us. Uh, and then he knew how to kind of prepare us and then get out of our way. You know, he didn't need to be like he, his, his verbalness was the prep and practice. It was not just what is this team going to run, but it was like, who do you want to be? You know, it was a constant reminder of what we could accomplish together and who we wanted to be. But when the game started, he let us be what we were good at. He didn't try and step in. He didn't try to take the credit. He didn't try to, you know, get in our way. He just let us be what we were good at at the time. And I don't remember if he was nervous or not. He never seems it. And actually now I notice when he seems nervous way more than I did when I was there and even 10 years after. And now that I've been in coaching a long time, I can tell when he's nervous, when he walks out on the floor, it's funny that, you know, once you've been doing it, you get it. Um, but he didn't, he didn't portray any kind of nervousness to us. He was confident in who we were. He believed we were going to win. And so we, therefore we did. And what's it like when you're cutting down the nets? Cause a lot of people mm -hmm. will never experience that. Um, what's it like you're, you're climbing a ladder and yep. Yeah, just take us there. It's like the best feeling ever. I wish, um, I say it all the time when I'm recruiting kids, like how could you not want to go somewhere where you get to cut down nets? It's like the picture of what success is in college sports or in, in basketball. It's it's like you think about when teams win championships, what, what are the pictures that are shown? Is the kids cutting down the net, the coach holding up the net at the end? Um, there's, there's commercials about ladders during the NCAA tournament because it's such a big part of how people measure, you know, championships. So it's amazing. Like it's something that I obviously, I honestly crave when I don't get it. Like when I see someone else climbing up a ladder, it like eats at me. Like that's how great it is. So like, I've done it a lot. I've done it as a player. I've done it as a pro. I've done it as a coach. It's hard in the years that you don't get to cut down the net when you've done it before because it's a really special feeling. Can you put your finger on the emotion and what it feels like? Because uh, I'd imagine it, it, it's it's an emotion. Yeah. Well, it's funny because like you think about the couple things. Um, 
the end of the game and you watch like the celebration. So usually the camera's like on the coach and then on the team and how they react when the horn goes off and not necessarily on a buzzer beater, but just like that feeling when like, you know, you're about to win the championship, um, that, and then it kind of like blurs because you're like trying to give handshakes to the other team. You're trying to figure out how to address your own team. You're trying to figure out like, are, what are we doing right now? Is there a championship celebration? So all of that gets like lost and then you get to cut. And then, and then I had to go to the press conference then I got to cut down the net. So it's kind of like, those are the two moments that I always remember is the very end of the game. How am I going to feel and how do I feel? And then what it feels like to walk up the ladder. And it's, it's just like pure elation. It's like that sense of accomplishment. It's like, I, I think a lot about the players as they're climbing up the ladder and how they feel and whether it's their first time or maybe their last time or, you know, their only time. Um, and how special that is that, that they get to do it. Um, and then just to be able to, you know, for me, be the one that like finishes the cutting and pulling the net off the thing. It's again, it just symbolizes like the end, like not the end of the season, but just like everything that we've worked for, you know, culminating into this moment. You mentioned playing pro basketball and winning championships there. What was it like being a pro? What was it like playing with mm -hmm. legends yeah um and what was it like to win a championship at that level if yeah. there are similarities differences that might exist um, yeah for you um it was different um it was hard for me to go from UConn to pro uh, basketball we were a really tight-knit group at UConn we very much believed in the way that we did things and that that was that was how you won you know, like this is, and, and at the time I probably thought this is the only way that you should win. Um, when I went to the pros, I learned a whole different way to win and how different, um, you know, team chemistry, how it didn't matter as much. That talent mattered more. <laughs> Even coaching didn't matter as much. <laughs> that a little bit of like people staying healthy and having the best players mattered more than doing things the right way. So it was hard for me. It was an adjustment um, to have teammates I didn't know as well, teammates that didn't like me as much or appreciate me. Um, you know, I, we, I was playing in Connecticut, so there was a little bit of resentment for being a fan favorite, which I wasn't used to because we were all fan favorites at Connecticut, and now I was playing for a team, a New England team, but I was the only... Connecticut player so I was like the favorite and that was hard it created some resentment I went to Houston had some of the best players to ever play in the WNBA and there were times where they all hated each other and we still won we still found a way to like get it done and have a great experience at the end of the year regardless of the fact that they fought within each other all the time I went to Cleveland much more of a family atmosphere there we just and we were able to win because of that a little bit, just never able to get to that next layer level because we just didn't have the talent. So I learned a lot about how pro sports is very different than, than college. And I enjoyed my experiences. I learned a lot to be able to go from Gino to three or four different coaches and now be able to learn how other coaches do things, good and bad. And then I was also play, uh, coaching at Hartford um, at the same time I was playing. So I was learning, literally learning on the job, how to be a player, 
how to be coached and then how to turn around and coach other players. So just a really good experience for my development. I think if I had only played for Gino, I wouldn't be as balanced as I am as a coach. We'll definitely get into coaching, but I want to stay with you as a player. Yeah. What were some things that you would do to set your mind, uh, routines, mm-hmm. habits? I asked one of your players downstairs, you know, what would, what question should I ask coach on the podcast? Yeah. And I'll let you try to figure out which player it was down there. But she said what music she used to get herself hype. Um, that was the question uh, that she wanted me to ask. So I'm asking it, but I'm curious, like, what did you do to get yourself mentally mm-hmm. ready for game day? Well, I didn't listen to music like they do now. I mean, I don't know if we probably had like, CD players. I don't know what we had, but we didn't have the convenient iPods and the and the Bluetooth headphones. So I didn't listen to music uh, in the locker room. I I was always the first player at the gym um, because I wanted to be on the court first so that I could shoot and not have to like deal with other people's balls like being shot at the same time as mine. So how early would you get to the gym? So if if we played at seven, let's say. And our time as a team was a stretch at six. I would try to be on the court by like five, five fifteen to get all of my shots in before everybody else came out so that I wasn't disrupting them. And then they weren't disrupting me. And then I would take my break when they all came out. So it was important to me. When did that start for you? Uh, Probably my freshman year. I don't remember, but I know it was early in my career. And any idea why you came to that or how you came to that? Um, I just think I was that I got, you know, I made the shots I needed to make. And if I needed to make 200 shots to make five in the game, then I would do it. Like, I didn't want to leave anything to chance. I didn't want to not be prepared. I didn't want to not to be able to say, well, if I had only shot more before the game, maybe I would have been able to help us win. So that was my routine. It's what calmed me. It's what helped me set my mind to be ready and to be prepared and to be confident. And I couldn't always do it on the road, so it was a little bit more of a challenge, but I still had, I would still try and be that first guy out there. Like that was important to me was, you know, everything in my life has been about being competitive and I've definitely chilled out, you know, in my older age, but I wanted to be first. I wanted to show that I cared the most. I wanted to get the most shots up. I never wanted somebody to outwork me, so... That was part of how I processed that. So getting yourself confident, comfortable, whatever you want to call, you'd start early. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were you like right before the tip? They're announcing the starting lineups or whatever. Yeah. What were you mentally, emotionally? Yeah. Where were you in that time? Um, I was a very emotional player. Like I definitely wore wore that on my sleeve, but I had a pretty good game face. You know, we would come in you know, seven, eight minutes before the game. And this was in college. And then we would run out to the fight song and it would get us pumped up. And, you know, like I was physically ready and excited. And then, but I had always had a game face on. And then I wasn't like into like big um, handshakes or dances. Like I was very serious about the start of the basketball game. And then once it started, then I was like, loud and emotional and passionate but in that moment before the game i was i was very serious and how about the morning of uh were you someone who liked to think about the game all day did you disassociate and you know do something else uh what would you do on the day of a game um no i think i thought i I don't know exactly how i was um i mean it's been like what 14 years since i played so and then 
20 plus years from college and we, we had shoot around, you know, so we, it was always there, you know, it was never, you know, I wanted, I knew the scouting report. I knew what I was doing. We didn't have apps to watch film. I probably would have made me crazy if I did back then, if I had all the technology that they have nowadays, I would probably be overprepared, but I don't think that I disassociated. I think if anything, I would, I would be thinking about it all day, but not, not necessarily in a nervous way, in a way that made me anxious. Uh, my nerves usually came like right before the game. Um, like even I can remember my last experience in Cleveland, like wanting to play well, you know, that like anxiousness that's like in your stomach as you're going out for warmups that I want to play well. And then just like, and I have the same exact feeling as a coach, but as soon as the game starts, I'm fine. And that's how I was as a player. As soon as the game started, even if whether I started or I was on the bench, I was fine. But those minutes leading up to the game, I was fine all day. And then those minutes leading up to the game, I was certainly anxious about wanting to play well. And what was your mindset like if nobody's there, let's say it's midnight and you're getting shots up mm -hmm. or, you know, what is your mindset? What was your mindset like as a player when no one was watching? Um, no one was watching. Um, I don't know. I guess I was just, I did, I probably was in that scenario a lot. Uh, in college, at least, I was in the gym a lot by myself, and it was always just wanting to get better. Uh, I set usually set very specific goals for myself within that shooting workout, um, and I'd get really frustrated if I couldn't meet them. So just a high standard for what I was trying to accomplish. So the competitor in you would come out even when yeah. no – you're not going against anybody mm -hmm. and no one's watching. Oh yeah. Because it would be like, I have to make 95 out of a hundred free throws. And as soon as I missed the six one, I'd be pissed and start over. Or I'd have to make, you know, 50 out of 75 threes. And if I didn't, I would do it over. So I was very much like, I'm going to go until I get what I set the standard I set for myself. Gotcha. Let's go to coaching. So, a, is your mindset like that for coaching where, you know, if you're watching film or coming up with a game plan or whatever it might be, are you still just trying to constantly um, improve or get better? Um, how is it different? How is it similar mm -hmm. to uh, when you were playing? Um, it's, it's a lot different, to be honest with you, because um, I from the very beginning – um, I made sure that I never had the expectation that anyone would be like me so that if I found someone that was, it was like a treat, but the chances of my t entire team preparing and having the same expectations that I did, it was just such an unrealistic thing to be thinking about that I just didn't. You know, I remember people saying in my first couple of years, like, aren't you frustrated that they don't play as hard as you used to play? And I'm like, no, I don't. I want them to play harder, but not because I played that way, but because, like, I want to win, you know? And so I tried really hard to never compare anyone to me. Um, so in my own preparation, whether it's watching film or preparing practice or trying to come up with a better way of doing something, I'll still set a high standard for myself, but... Uh, I can't, I can't control the game like I used to. I can't impact it when it's going on. 
the way that I used to. So I've been very realistic that I can prepare them and I can give them the right mindset and I can try and motivate and I can say the right things. But once that game starts, it's like 90% them and 10% me. And I tell them that all the time. I'm like, I might drop the wrong play or the right play. I might sub right or sub wrong, but 90% of the responsibility of our, this game is going to come on you. So, you know, you, you need to come in and be prepared. Like I can only help you this much. Like I helped you get to this point. Now it's on you. It's your, it's your turn. It's your job. And so I try to be consistent with that message because I want them to take responsibility and I want them to know that I'm not going to take the credit when we win either, that it's going to be all them and how they decide to play. There's a couple of thoughts in my head, but the one that I'm going to pull on the most is there is this notion that, you know, great players struggle with being coaches Mm -hmm. Because yeah. of what you're talking about is like they can't understand why someone wouldn't do X, Y, and Z. Like, because it came easier to them, or that's not even the right word. That's just how they saw the world and how do they adapt to someone who might not see the world the same mm-hmm. way? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Why do you think you were able to make that shift and come to an understanding? You were using the example of playing hard and, you know, getting people would say to you, oh, aren't you frustrated? They're not yeah. playing as hard as you. What do you think allowed you to not go down that rabbit hole? Well, one, I'm not like, you know, six four and athletic. So I think my success came from work ethic and intangible things, not necessarily physical gifts. Not that I'm not talented and I wasn't given a level of athleticism, but when you look at me, you're not, you know, you're. I'm not translating from like, you know, Michael Jordan to Rebecca Lobo. Yeah. So I think um, to be able to send that message to the team that like how much you can accomplish, like look at me and look at what I've done and like you can accomplish this too. Like being able to send that message that you can overcome a lot by your desire and your heart and your work ethic. That was always a message from me from the beginning. And then I think just the reward of it when you see it, you know, when it's, when it does click with somebody that when you do see that somebody's in the gym all the time or somebody's making the effort to watch extra film or somebody wants to like really take the next step in their game, it's really rewarding. And so I think just being smart enough to know that I wasn't going to do it with everybody also being smart enough. And I said this to people, uh, my teammates don't all work as hard as I do. Why would I expect the players that I'm coaching to work that hard? Like, I had really great college teammates. None of them were in the gym as much as I was. Not one of them. So like, if I can't expect the All-Americans at UConn to be in the gym all the time, why would I turn around at Hartford and expect those players to be in the gym all the time? So I think just the expectation that I did it, so you can, but I also didn't have a bunch of teammates in there with me. So I can be realistic that if I can get a few of them to do it, and then also have enough talent and motivate them in the right way, we can still be successful. And that that's enough for me. It's cool because you think about your experience at UConn and you said freshman year, at least the way I was hearing it was maybe frustration that, oh, why wouldn't you do it this way? Why, mm-hmm. you know, and just expecting everyone to do what you needed to do. And then by the time you were a junior, it had shifted yeah. from, all right, how do I just get each person to maximize yeah. whatever their best self looks like? And it sounds like that has now impacted you as yes. a coach where it's like my job isn't to make them all like me. My job is to figure out how we can get the most 
as a team yeah. out of each of the individuals so that the sum is greater than the individual parts. Yes, yes. And that's what Gino's really good at. So like if I had to pick one thing that I also want to be really good at that he does is motivating everybody individually. So getting the best out of each one, not expecting player A to be just like player B, not expecting a freshman to be like a senior uh, those are the things that he's a master at. And so it's not just that I learned it while I was playing for him because he was doing it to me, but I continued to watch him over the years motivate and develop the players that he's had and how they're all different, whether it's Brianna Stewart to a Gabby Williams to, you know, like somebody who barely played as a freshman and went on to be a good role player. He does it uniquely to each person and he does it really well. So that's something I really tried to model after him. How do you do that? How do you find the thing yeah. that, that and, and like, well, and I say how, um, in the sense of like, what does that process look like for yeah. you? Um, honestly, it's, um, very simply just good communication skills. I'm surprised at how, um, a lot of players complain about, you know, not being, no one being honest with them, you know, throughout their journey or nobody really communicating with them what they need to be better at to play and not everybody wants to hear it you know like I do think some kids they ask for it you tell them and they don't want to hear it and then they get to be a junior and they're like oh okay now I get it so it takes time but I do try to be very clear with my communication and very honest um I don't sugarcoat it, but I also don't insult, you know, like I think there's a fine line with talking to a kid, treating them like a responsible adult and asking them to take accountability for their actions and then saying you're not, so you're not playing like this. It's bottom line. It's not. And then trying to teach them how to give themselves their own confidence. Like I, I can't, I'm not going to fill that confidence void for you. I can't as your coach, like the only way that you people think you feel confident as if you earn playing time. And that's not even the case. You know, like some kids just, it's more natural for them to be confident in their ability and others have a struggle with it. But I'm not as a coach going to be the one that can give you confidence. So you need to figure out what it is that you need to do as a player to be a confident player. And some of that is extra work. Some of that is extra film. Some of that is extra conditioning. Some of that is different kind of preparation. But if you think that me rewarding playing time is going to fix your confidence issue, it's not. So I try to teach them how to prepare to bring their own level of confidence to the table. And then what do you need to do when you get there to, to, to be on the court more? Two, two major things that I would say, one is I've worked with pro basketball players and I often ask them like, who's the coach that you most enjoyed playing for. Mm -hmm. And it is interesting to hear their response to that because often it is the one that just held them accountable yeah. and, you know, saw something in them and challenged them. Mm -hmm. And they even admit to me sometimes they're like, when I was in it, they weren't the coach that I enjoyed playing for yeah. the most. But looking back, like I really yeah. am grateful for that. And, and I agree with you. It doesn't mean it's demeaning and it doesn't mean that it's, um, you know, you, it, that line is, is yeah. very important to draw, but they often say the one that challenged me and to go further than maybe I thought I could go. Um, well, I think also holding, holding everybody to the same standard 
but understanding that everybody's different and it's not always going to be fair, you know, like in terms of you get to play when, when you don't, when you don't play defense, but you don't get to play when you don't play. Like you're all, you all have to go to study hall. You all have to do well in the classroom. You all have to do the community service. You all have to act the right way. That standard's always going to be the same. You all have to work hard, but there's difference in talent level. So there are going to be different. It's not always going to be fair. You know, but we're going to set a standard across the board. And if you as a coach will stick to that, I think they respect you for it. Yeah, because the players that I run into that are struggling with coaches are usually yeah. saying the coach is playing games with me. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're saying one thing, but the, and when they know they're being gamed, uh, and you know, mm -hmm. as a player, because I'm sure it happened to you at some point. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's you often lose trust in relationship mm -hmm. and like any relationship, if you're being gamed, yeah, <laughs> it's it's not going to end no, very well. Exactly. Uh, and then the other thing that you spoke on was confidence, which when I ask athletes, what do you want to work on? They usually will say confidence. And I think there is a big misconception that confidence comes from success or yeah. it comes from playing time or yeah. whatever it might be. And it really does come from within and mm -hmm. the story we tell ourselves and the dialogue we have with mm -hmm. ourselves. And the reason I know that to be true is because let's say you're coaching someone, you might tell player X, um, you know, Hey, I really believe in you. You're going to do great things here. You may t say the same exact thing to player Y and player X might sit there and say, yeah, coach, I know I can, I'm going to do it. And player Y might sit there and be like, I don't think I'm able to do that. Why is coach yep. saying that? She's putting pressure on me. <laughs> and so the interpretation that we have yes. is what dictates the the self-confidence. And I love that you brought it up because I think a lot of coaches believe that they can instill confidence into their players. I think they can help unlock the confidence within their players. Yes. But to instill it is something completely different. Yes, exactly. And I think that it's a process and very few kids come into college with the ability to do that. So part of our job is to kind of push them along and help them understand it and for them to learn from the other players in the program that have been through it. Why coaching? So you just mentioned, Hey, I started coaching while I was yeah. playing professionally. What was the draw to coaching? When did you know you wanted to coach? All, um, all that good stuff. Yeah. So I never thought about coaching. Actually, I kind of fell into it. I was playing, finishing my first year in the WNBA and I had played a playoff game in New York city and we had to go back to Houston to play a third game three. And um, the AD from Hartford was at the game in New York. So while I was in Houston finishing up the season. She called and just mentioned that her coach had resigned very last minute. It was like August 31st and that she was looking for an interim coach for the season. And she, you know, had, uh, worked at UConn when I was there. She knew me. She saw me in New York and it just kind of sparked an idea that maybe I'd be interested. So I said, no, thanks, but I'm good. And then she followed back up and, and just said, we do, you know, when you get back to Connecticut, would you consider coming over to have a conversation about it? So I had just gotten married in July. My husband and I were like looking for a house. We were trying to like start our married life out together. And I just didn't think it would be a good idea to like embark on this new adventure, seeing as I was just finishing, you know, my fourth year now of, of playing. Um, so I went over and had a conversation. And then as I'm driving away, I'm thinking, this woman's offering me a head coaching job at 25. I have no experience. Like who knows if this ever will happen again. It's a six month commitment. Why not? So my husband and I agreed to give it a, give it a go. 
and didn't really take long <laughs> to figure out it was what I was meant to be doing. Not that just that I would be good at it or not that I loved it, but that it was what I was meant to be doing and that, you know, this was the way for me to continue to be. I was always a coach on the floor. I was always the one comfortable telling everybody what to do. And this was like the perfect job for me. So, uh, yeah, I never thought about coaching before that until she called. So I, I give her a lot of credit for my career. And I'd love to uh, just wrap up with what do you love about coaching? Um, well, I love the opportunity to shape other people's lives in a good way to be a positive impact on their, um, career, but also set them up for like what comes next in life and work really hard to help prepare them for that. Um, I love the relationships that I make. Um, I have 20, 20 years now of former players. I've been to eight weddings of former players. I've seen plenty, 10 to 15 grand, uh, not grandchildren, but children of my former players, um, come into this world and, um, to just be able to see now the impact that I made on their lives. And they say, you know, you asked that question about, you know, who did you enjoy playing for the most when a kid sends you a letter or sends you an email or a text and thanks you for something you did for them years ago and, and says, I never realized how important it was until this moment. It means a lot. It's it's uh, certainly the way that I measure my success is how my former players feel about me and how impactful I can be on their future success. Awesome. So I want to give you a platform to give a megaphone to anything that you want to give a megaphone to, uh -oh. social media, websites, um, anything that you feel is important. And I'll also put it in the show notes. So uh, if you don't mean remember. Meaning what? <laughs> Yeah, GW, basketball, oh, okay. whatever you want to do. Yeah, I mean, I don't really know all the social media handles for our our stuff. I mean, that's like more of my assistant coaches. I, I don't even love social media, but I know it's an important part of what we do. And, and it's, it's, it's now, it's what we're, it's the reality that we live in. And it's certainly the way we get the word out about our program. And we got some special young ladies in our program. So following them on Instagram and Twitter is uh, is great because it gives you a chance to get to know who they are as people. So I'll put it in the show notes, make okay. sure I get it from those great assistant coaches <laughs> that you mentioned, and uh, we'll put that in there. And I just want to end by thanking you. Um, I'm very fortunate that I get to work with GW's athletic yeah. department yes. and uh, our paths have crossed yes. and, uh, to see the relationships that you cultivate with uh, mm -hmm. your players. And um, I think, you know, the Spurs always talk about, taking your job seriously, but not taking yourself too seriously. Yeah. I think you embody that and yeah. um, you challenge and support uh, not just the students here, but also your staff and uh, being able to be a fly on the wall and witness that uh, has been a pleasure. And yeah. I'm excited to see where the journey takes you for next year. And it was fun to sit back and uh, watch. I was watching uh, you guys in the, uh, in the conference championship with my wife and, mm -hmm. and just watching it. And, um, I've just been grateful that I get to yeah. get to know you and, and, and the players here. Cause it's, it's wonderful and yeah. it's fun. And, uh, well, you were there on one of the first practices we had and you saw how far we've come and we appreciate your, your help and work with our team to, to get them to that point. I think it's always nice to have them hear another voice of, maybe a same message, but in a different way. And I think the sessions that they had with you and the activities that they were able to do to build their confidence and trust in each other went a long way this year. So we certainly appreciate your help and I'm glad you were able to see us at the beginning and, and certainly see the result that we, we were at the end. 
Awesome. Thanks so much for the time and looking forward to many more intentional conversations. All right. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Uh, In college, at least, I was in the gym a lot by myself, and it was always just wanting to get better. Uh, I set usually set very specific goals for myself within that shooting workout, um, and I'd get really frustrated if I couldn't meet them. So just a high standard for what I was trying to accomplish because it would be like I have to make 95 out of 100 free throws and as soon as I miss the sixth one I'd be pissed and start over or I'd have to make you know 50 out of 75 threes and if I didn't I would do it over so I was very much like I'm gonna go until I get what I set the standard I set for myself.